MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, December 23rd, 2019. I'm your host, AG, and today we have our interviews from the Mullerpalooza episode of Muller She Wrote, which originally aired on December 30th, 2018, and includes appearances by Greg Proops, Mimi Roca, Joyce Vance, Seth Abramson, Andrea Chalupa, Sarah Kenzier, Virginia Heffernan, Renato Mariotti, Scott Dworkin, Elizabeth McLaughlin, Greg Oliar, Jack Bryan, David Priest, and Randall of Honey Badger Don't Give a Shit fame. Uh, Each guest will tell us what they think is most important to them, the story that they thought had the most impact in 2018. So I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed making it. All right, guys. And for uh, the interview, what what we did this week was we got all of our favorite uh, listeners, past guests all together. And we did this last minute. Everyone was so kind to do this. And we asked them what they thought the most consequential news story, like like in our Mueller Madness bracket, or the weirdest or funniest story is of 2018, uh, to see what they thought. And, and here is a montage of all of their answers. So this is Joyce Vance. The most important development in the Mueller investigation in 2018 is something that's been hotly debated at my dinner table over the last few nights. But where I come down, I think, is a, is a slightly off-center place from where most people are. I think about Mueller's central charge, figuring out whether the Trump campaign worked with Russians to get him elected. We don't know the answer to that for sure. But Mueller, I think, by now does. And the answer to that question is the most important thing that happened in the Russia investigation this year. Uh, You know, we don't know where Mueller's going. We don't know if he'll be indicting anyone else or not. But this idea that he has evidence that's not yet public, that he's compiled so that he can reach these decisions, is, I think, the most important thing that he's done this year and the most important thing for all of us. And it may even be that some of those important pieces have leaked out into the public, but we don't yet know their significance because we don't see the uh, full picture. And then I think the final thing it's important to say is this. Um, Bob Mueller has taken on almost mythical significance for some folks in this country, but we have to remember that he's a prosecutor. He's not a knight in shining armor. He will, at the end of the day, do a prosecutor's job. His his goal is not, cannot be to save all of us. It's simply to fulfill his responsibilities as a prosecutor. So he'll use the evidence. He'll do it in a truthful way, but he's shown us that we can have confidence in him and that this certainly is not a political operation or a witch hunt, that this is a prosecutorial effort to seek the truth and to hold accountable those who are responsible. So I I see that as the most important lesson that we've learned this year wrapped up with the most important work that Mueller has done. Hi, this is Sarah Kenzier. I'm the co-host of the podcast Gaslit Nation. Um, And I think the most interesting Trump-Russia story of 2018 is the recent expose in BuzzFeed about the hijacking of the U.S. Treasury by Russia um, as early as 2015. I think it's appalling that this wasn't 
um, stopped, uh, that it's only being reported now. So kudos to BuzzFeed for finally breaking that story. Um, and the implications of it are enormous. Um, and, you know, I don't think that we've, we've seen the scope of that play out yet. This is Seth Abramson. I'm the author of Proof of Collusion. For me, the most important Trump-Russia event of 2018, by far, with no clear second place, is a report that came out in the New York Times on May 19th, 2018, in which the New York Times reported that on August 3rd, 2016, there was a meeting that occurred at Trump Tower. And that meeting at Trump Tower is critically important now, and it will be going forward to the Trump-Russia investigation. So let me give some context to that New York Times reporting. Now, first of all, let me say that there's been no follow-up on that reporting from the New York Times, but we do know that Robert Mueller is looking into that meeting specifically. Um, the reason I think this meeting on August 3rd, 2016 at Trump Tower could turn out to be the single most important event in the entire Trump-Russia timeline, not just in 2018, but of all the events that we have heard of so far, is because of three things. First of all, who was there? Second of all, what was discussed at that meeting? And third, the current status of the meeting's participants with respect to the Mueller investigation. So let me start first with who was at that Trump Tower meeting on August 3rd, 2016, about 90 days before the 2016 election. The first person who was there was Donald Trump Jr., and anytime Donald Trump Jr., who was not officially connected to the campaign, but obviously his father was the Republican candidate in 2016, anytime he's at a meeting, that's crucially important because it brings with it everything that that implies. First of all, did he tell his father about the meeting on August 3rd, 2016, before it happened? Did he tell him about it immediately after it happened? Did Donald Trump Sr. offer any input into how Donald Trump Jr. conducted himself at that meeting? Or even because we know that Donald Trump Sr. sometimes, quote unquote, attended meetings in Trump Trump Tower through one-way speakerphone where people didn't know that he was listening on meeting, there's even a possibility that the candidate himself was aware of what was happening at the meeting while it was happening. The second person who was there, George Nader, an emissary of the Saudi crown prince who we know as MBZ, and also an emissary of the United Arab Emirates, Emirati, crown prince MBZ. That's how he's known, Mohammed bin uh, Zayed. MBS is Mohammed bin Salman. Nader met with Jared Kushner, Michael Flynn, Steve Bannon, and it appears possibly even Donald Trump on many occasions after the election. But this is the first meeting we know of that took place prior to Election Day that George Nader attended. It's important for people to understand that George Nader was the architect of what I call the Red Sea Conspiracy. That is a plot that was hatched on a yacht in the Red Sea in November or December of 2015 to have three Middle East nation leaders, MBS, MBZ, and the president of Egypt, uh, al-Sisi, partner with a U.S. politician, and it was decided on that yacht that the politician would be Donald Trump, to remake the Middle East dramatically, geopolitically, diplomatically, militarily, and in every possible sense. The third person who was at that meeting on August 3rd, 2016, was Eric Prince. Trump was a shadow national, uh, excuse me, Eric Prince was a shadow national security advisor for Donald Trump during the campaign. He was involved in the hunt for Hillary's emails. He was involved in covert Trump negotiations with Russia and also with Middle Eastern nations over nuclear technology and the use of American mercenaries in place of uh, American military might in the Middle East, in Syria and elsewhere. And then finally, the last person who was there, Joel Zamel, someone who we will be hearing a lot more about, an Israeli businessman who previously was an Israeli intelligence agent 
who at the time of that August 3rd, 2016 meeting was working with two Trump-connected Russian oligarchs. Rebolovlev, who Trump allegedly, we believe, met with twice in the 10 days before the 2016 election, and Deripaska, who was, of course, Paul Manafort's contact uh, in terms of someone who was a Kremlin agent and someone who Manafort had previously worked with. And then briefly, I'll just say what was discussed there. What was discussed is that Nader representing Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Zamel representing Israeli intelligence interests, as well as the Kremlin, offered collusive assistance to the Trump family. And here's the key thing. The New York Times reports that Donald Trump Jr. said yes. So put aside for a moment that June 2016 meeting where the Russians offered collusive assistance and allegedly the Trumps in the person of Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner said no. In this case, the New York Times said that Donald Trump Jr. said yes. And then finally, what's the current status of those meetings participants? Well, Donald Trump Jr. has told friends that he expects to be indicted. We have reports from the New York Times and Washington Post that Eric Prince clearly lied to Congress during his testimony, and therefore we might expect that Eric Prince will at some point be indicted. And then most importantly, George Nader is cooperating with Robert Mueller. So Robert Mueller knows everything about the lead up to this meeting and what happened with George Nader and also Eric Prince afterwards. For instance, one of the reasons we know Eric Prince lied to Congress about his January 2017 meeting in the Seychelles is because George Nader told Robert Mueller that he had set up that meeting so that Prince could be Trump's envoy to Kirill Dmitriev of the Russian Foreign Investment Direct Fund. And therefore, we know that George Nader can implicate Eric Prince. So I think that the what I've referred to as the grand bargain among a large number of nations to offer pre-election collusive assistance to the Trumps essentially crystallized on that date with all of the key parties except for Egypt present in that room in Trump Tower on August 3rd, 2016. And wouldn't you know it, two weeks after that meeting, George Papadopoulos orchestrated a meeting between Donald Trump and the president of Egypt, al-Sisi, and Michael Flynn attended that meeting just as Michael Flynn attended subsequent meetings with George Nader with MBZ, with Eric Prince, with Steve Bannon, with Jared Kushner, as they flushed out this five-nation illegal, collusive pre-election bargain to offer money and other forms of assistance to the Trump campaign. This is David Priest. I'm the chief operating officer of the Lawfare Institute, known for the Lawfare blog, author of How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives, and Robert Mueller's former daily intelligence briefer from when I was back at CIA. Reflecting back on 2018, the most important moment related to Mueller that I can think of is the hacking and leaking indictment in July of the 12 Russians, in part because of its specificity. All of us had been saying for a while that Mueller does his homework, that he crosses his T's and he dots his I's, and there wasn't going to be anything sloppy about it. And we had a preview of that in the February indictments of the IRA troll farm. But the July indictment was exquisite in terms of the specific emails, street addresses, and all of those involved in the targeting of the Clinton campaign. But the oddest moment for me came not that far removed from that in time. The oddest Mueller moment of 2018 was what I call Mullergate, which was on July 27th, when Bob Mueller and Junior were seen together at the same airport gate at Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C. And you would have thought for the next week 
that this was the second coming because everybody wanted to comment about they were at the same gate. What could they have done? Did they notice? Just about anything to do with this was headline news. It even got Peter Carr, the spokesman for the special counsel, to actually comment publicly, something he was not wont to do. He, as I recall, confirmed that Mueller was in the photo and said that he was waiting to board a flight. And those are more words that we'd gotten out of Peter Carr in many ways. So the obsession with Mullergate in July is certainly odd, but it is a reflection of the fact that he has not been taking a public stance, and that bodes well for 2019. Hey, this is uh, Jack Bryan. I'm the co-writer, director of the documentary Active Measures. Uh, and I think that the biggest uh, the most consequential story relating to Trump and Russia this year has been Rick Gates flipping. Uh, it hasn't gotten a lot of attention recently, and uh, it feels like it's been overshadowed by other uh, things. But Gates is uh, a character who is, I think, very much uh, part of the Russian operation with Manafort and kind of takes over for Manafort to some extent uh, after Manafort leaves and was on the transition and also knows the sort of backstory in a way uh, with Manafort that uh, the other people in this might not. Uh, and so while I think that there is certainly a chance that, that Cohen flipping could be the biggest deal, uh, or um, I think it's also possible that some foreign intelligence services helping out, we don't really have enough of that yet. I think that the Gates thing, for my money, is likely to be the story that uh, had the most effect in that it allows uh, Mueller to cross-reference his uh, interviews after that. And I think Gates has a lot of information. Hi, this is Greg Oliar, the author of Dirty Rubles, an introduction to Trump Russia. And for me, the most consequential story for me uh, involving Trump Russia was the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and I guess it wasn't consequential. It was more of a mind blow for me personally, because what it, what it brought home for me was how Fast the scope of all of this really is. Uh, Trump Russia, it turns out, isn't really just about Russia. It doesn't confine itself to that boundary and those borders. There's other countries involved. And it's not so much the murder of Khashoggi as much as the connections that Jared Kushner had uh, with MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, who we know pretty much was behind the, the, the assassination. And Trump, in his bizarre uh, response to it, just clinging desperately to any excuse he could to, 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 to wish it away and hope that people didn't ask any more questions. He, he didn't want to blame MBS. And I think it, it sort of brought home for me just how corrupt these people are, how much people have on them, how much they owe other people for where they are and how willing they are uh, to, to do what, what the the people say and, and, and command them to do. Um, so I think one of the questions people constantly ask is what's taking so long? Hurry up, Mueller. Well, why is it taking so long? And I think it's taking so long because of the scope of this thing. It's just, it, we know more than most people. And what we know is, is the tip of the iceberg compares to, to what Mueller knows. And it's just so big that it just takes time. Hey, this is AG, and you're listening to our Mueller-Palooza interview from December 30th, 2018. I hope you're enjoying it here on The Daily Beans. We'll be right back with more in just a moment. 
This portion of the Daily Beans is brought to you by Root Insurance. I'm a good driver. Nay, I am a great driver. I do not get road rage, mostly because I listen to classical music when I drive, but I do flip the bird like I'm conducting a symphony. Uh, But what does get me mad, actually, is overpaying for car insurance. And now I'm done with that because I have found the ideal inexpensive insurance company for me. It's called Root Insurance. Instead of basing your car insurance rate on credit score, age, gender, or zip code, Root Insurance bases it primarily on how you drive. By taking bad drivers out of the equation, Root saved its good drivers up to 52% in 2019. There's a reason why Root has been featured in Forbes, TechCrunch, Wired, The Washington Post, and Fortune magazine. In 2019, Root was the fastest growing direct insurance company in the United States, and they're the world's first mobile-first car insurance company. Their insurance card is available right from your phone, and if you get into an accident, you can file a claim directly in the app. It's so easy. Car insurance made easy. Who'd have thunk? With rates based on how you drive, not who you are. I love it. And all you have to do is download the Root Insurance app, drive normally for a few weeks during the Root test drive, and see how much you can save. Don't wait and give Root a try. Head to your app store and download the Root Insurance app. Sign up in less than a minute to start your test drive today. That's Root, R-O-O-T, again. Download the Root app today or visit joinroot.com to learn more and see how much you could save. Root reserves the right to refuse to quote any individual premium rate for the insurance advertised herein. Savings based on national reviews reported by actual customers. Form 1 not available in all states. This product is not available in California. And now back to our Mueller-Palooza interviews. Hi, this is uh, Scott Dworkin. I'm the co-founder of the Democratic Coalition, and I'm also the host of the Dworkin Report podcast. I think the most important story of 2018 has to be Michael Cohen's indictment and also partial flipping on Trump. It, It just was so cataclysmic towards his administration, and it's been so uh, long and ongoing, and there's so many facets of it. You have not only the payoff to porn stars that involve FEC violations of felonies uh, directed by Trump, which also makes him an unindicted unindicted co-conspirator, but uh, also you have the parts of of Russia and the other business deals that they've done uh, over the past, you know, 15 years or so. So there, there's a lot to, to dig in there. Um, on top of the fact that uh, Cohen pled guilty and he started cooperating at least a, a little bit with prosecutors. So I, I think that this is something that will end up being, you know, the, the worst part to Trump because he was the, the wingman. Hey, it's Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin from Resistance Live. So my choice for the most significant event of the year with regard to Trump-Russia is actually somewhat unconventional, I think. And it is the Flynn sentencing memorandum that was filed by Robert Mueller. The reason why I think it's so significant is that Flynn had his hands in so much dirty, ugly stuff. The attempt to kidnap a Turkish citizen and return him to Erdogan. The negotiations that we know of right now with the Russian ambassador. Um, the ongoing attempts to get nuclear power into Saudi Arabia and Egypt from the Russians and the Chinese. And he was engaged in all of this during the transition and the time that he was the national security advisor. Lo and behold, we get to December of this year, and Robert Mueller files a sentencing memorandum that recommends that Flynn doesn't do any jail time. And for me, coming out of a white-collar legal background, you know, someone who has been engaged in litigation that has had really massive criminal components attached to it, 
the idea that someone who had engaged in as much significant, dangerous criminal conduct as Mike Flynn would get a recommendation of no jail time from Robert Mueller, I think tells us an awful lot about what Flynn has given up in the context of information with regard to Trump. I find it very hard to believe personally that he could have gotten a sentencing recommendation of no jail time if he had not flipped at bare minimum on the vice president, if not the president himself. And so to me, the reason why this is the most significant event with regard to Trump Russia and Trump Mueller in 2018 is because of what it tells us about what's likely coming down the pike for next year. My name is Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor and the host of the On Topic podcast. To me, the most consequential thing that happened this year was Michael Cohen going in open court and saying under oath that Donald Trump directed him to commit a crime. It was unexpected, and I think it was extremely important because for the first time, you had the president of the United States directly implicated uh, in a crime that was charged and ultimately resulted in a conviction in federal court. It was later... Uh, confirmed by federal prosecutors, uh, accepted as a finding not only by the probation department, but it ultimately adopted by the federal judge in that case. And I believe that we're so focused at times on what's happening on the Russia side of things that we, we fail to realize that in many ways um, that is, in my mind, the most challenging and important legal problem that is facing the Trump administration. It's an investigation that is difficult uh, for Trump to stop. Uh, it, it does not uh, have anything to do with this typical rhetoric attacking the Mueller investigation about angry Democrats or no collusion. Uh, it is just a straight-up uh, crime that uh, is uh, that has fairly strong evidence. Uh, it's, uh, it's already resulted in a conviction, and there's very good reason to believe uh, that Trump may also be guilty of the same crime. But I think the untold story of this year uh, is what I'll call obstruction fatigue. Uh, we've gotten to the point where Donald Trump will say things that are openly corrupt, and we don't even bat an eye. Uh, I remember uh, one point this year, Donald Trump tweeted out criticizing his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, for failing to quash the investigations and indictments of two Republican congressmen who have been indicted and are accused of committing very serious crimes. He said that, you know, ultimately he thought it would result in the loss of those seats. And essentially what he was saying is that the attorney general of the United States should stop prosecutions of people if it benefits their party politically. It is just straight-up corrupt. There's no way to defend that statement. And yet, after a day or so, it was out of the news. More recently, he was directing uh, Matthew Whitaker, allegedly, as reported by CNN, uh, to control the prosecutors in Manhattan in the Southern District of New York. Once again, it was a one-day story. That, to me, is uh, very troubling, and it says something about our democracy. And I, I think when this is all said and done, uh, Robert Mueller is going to have a lot to say about obstruction of justice. And if it is not taken seriously on a bipartisan basis, in part that will be due, our, to, due to our own uh, failure to um, maintain the outrage that we should have at a president who is openly corrupt and trying to undermine the rule of law. Hello, everybody. This is Greg Proops, and uh, I'm the host of the Smartest Man in the World uh, podcast that my wife Jennifer and I put together. 
every week and take around the world where we discuss politics, feminism, history, music, drugs, and the like. Um, I think the most consequential um, happenstance in the uh, Mueller investigation in the last year is, of course, all of the um, indictments and convictions. Um, we're talking dozens now, including Russian nationals. And uh, I think in the last uh, a few weeks, um, having uh, Michael Flynn um, spill the beans, as it were, to um, the special investigators and then um, plead that he didn't know how um, all that worked and have the judge in Washington actually become furious with him and call him a traitor and then have to re-step on that and retract on that, I think says quite a lot about the character of all the people involved in this giant criminal um, operation. I also feel like uh, finally the public is getting uh, hip to the fact that there's no such thing as collusion and meddling. Collusion and meddling are made up terms um, that the so-called White House uses to obfuscate the fact that what we're talking about is collaboration and treason and an abrogation of um, about a million election laws and, uh, and the like. So I think uh, that's what's uh, – and as Jennifer and I were discussing before uh, I got on this um, uh, show, uh, the absolute um, secrecy and um, n- uh, complete compact non-leakage of the Mueller team has been wildly impressive. And the fact that they've been able to fund their entire investigation um, by forfeiture of assets of Manafort and all the villains involved in this. I feel like that's the most important thing that's happened so far. And uh, as a side note, I would say that uh, this is really, truly the year of the woman, um, uh, with uh, women taking over 25 percent of the Congress for the first time. Um, Nancy Pelosi, or Mrs. Pelosi, as she's known to the White House, um, putting the fear of absolute goddess into um, all of the um, misogynist predators that run this show. And that as something like Mueller, she wrote, which is um, a podcast run by three women that came hurtling out of obscurity, uh, would run into such um, acclaim and success in this fine year. Uh, this is Mimi Roca. I am a former SDMI prosecutor and now an MSNBC uh, legal analyst and at Pace University School of Law. And the most consequential and important, I think, moment in uh, 2018 in the whole Russia investigation was when the special counsel office uh, released two indictments, one after the other, uh, against the Russians for actually committing crimes here in the United States by trying to interfere, attack our elections. And I think it was the most important part so far because it actually put into facts and evidence things that we sort of knew, but now really could know for sure, because we knew that Mueller felt he could prove these things in court. So that to me was the most important part so far of the investigation. Hi, everyone. Happy New Year. It's Andrea Chalupa from Gaslit Nation, and I am thrilled to join Mueller, she wrote, in this uh, fantastic lineup of wonderful guests. And so I think one of the key stories of 2018, a year of so much confirmation, so much that we knew that was finally uh, confirmed, brought out in the open. You know, we knew that they needed conduits on the ground, pollinating their coalition of corruption. And of course, we got that confirmation with the arrest and uh, of Maria Butina, a Russian spy. 
And um, so that was exciting. We knew that the uh, Trump inauguration was one big Russian money laundering prom night, (laughs) which Maria Butina uh, attended, of course, with her so-called lover, Erickson. And so, yeah, so now that's being investigated. And so that's all wonderful. And so we'll, we'll probably hear more about the, the big inauguration night and all the crimes that likely were happening out in the open uh, during that night with uh, a record number of, of, of influential Russians, Russian oligarchs attending that inauguration. Um, there's, of course, accusations of, uh, of misspent funds and uh, whether favors were being traded and whether foreign policy, American foreign policy was being sold off essentially at that inauguration. So there's a lot of uh, there can be a lot of interesting developments there to watch, which I'm I'm thrilled about because that was a terrifying night, uh, just given the guest list alone, and just the massive amount of money being spent and just so little to show for it that night. Um, so, but I think the number one story to watch in 2018, where we had a frightening development, is of course Ukraine. So what happened at the end of November? For the Russia openly attacked Ukraine in international waters. That's a big shift because normally Russia tries to hide it. They had, you know, the so-called little green men showing up and annexing Crimea. Uh, they had so-called Russian rebels uh, invading East Ukraine. That was, of course, the Russian military invading Ukraine. Um, and right now you have a big Russian military buildup inside Crimea um, along the edge of East Ukraine. So, And, and, the, and the rhetoric is, is, is getting increasingly hostile and the propaganda towards Ukraine. It's a lot of... Um, it's all the signs are pointing to a very serious escalation in Ukraine in, in, in 2019. Um, so what's really significant about that in, in connection to Trump, Russia, I'd even say that the Mueller investigation is this, you know, um, we know that Putin and Trump, we, we had it confirmed at the that Helsinki summit where Trump came out like a chain dancing Russian bear, very submissive towards Putin, um, in, in the Helsinki press conference, that was terrifying. And there was even a report that it terrified, that it shocked people in the CIA. Um, and, and they're experts, of course, they're ahead of all of us, but it's still so stunning to see the so-called leader of the free world being submissive, almost like ad- admiring this uh, mass murdering dictator, Vladimir Putin. And, um, and during that press conference, uh, you had, the, leading up to it, you had the 12 Russians indicted, uh, you had Maria Butina shortly thereafter arrested. So you really saw this checks the balances by the Mueller investigation uh, with Rosenstein coming out and, and, and saying, we've got these 12 Russians we, by name, here they are, to try to sort of put a damper on Putin's big coming out party with Trump. Um, but of course, there's only so much that our checks and balances in the U.S. can do right now with this Russian mafia asset in the White House. And I think there's no clearer signal than, of that than the fact that the U.S. has not sanctioned Russia for openly attacking Ukraine. The U.S. has not led with the EU, as it normally would have done under Obama, in, in, ha- in, in convincing the EU to pass further sanctions um, against Russia for openly attacking Ukraine. And I think that is the scariest sign yet that, um, I don't want to say that Putin may be winning, but that is, that is really where we need to watch to see how this new world order could be potentially shifting with such a power vacuum in the White House and Putin uh, increasingly becoming more imperialist, imperialistic, more aggressive. Uh, we, he somehow was able, he and Erdogan were somehow able to convince Trump to get out of Syria. Syria is now fully owned by Russia. 
Um, that's a huge geopolitical win for Putin. That's a big base for them right there in the Mediterranean. And so is Ukraine next? And a lot of signs are pointing to a big escalation there. And, and, and that's going to be dangerous because it's going to further destabilize the EU. Um, you're going to have, it's going to worsen the refugee crisis in Ukraine. Millions have been displaced by the war in Ukraine. Um, that's, and, and, and worsening the refugee crisis will, of course, flood, uh, further flood the, the EU with refugees. And that could lead to a rise in the far-right rhetoric. Uh, you had the NATO commander, of course, in 2016 telling, telling the, the Senate that Russia was deliberately bombing civilians inside Syria to create more refugees to flood Europe. Why would he do that? Because the far-right parties that Putin can, that supports, uh, that Putin supports, they like to use that anti-refugee rhetoric, and that's how they try to you know, create hysteria and, and further push their nationalist agenda. So I just think uh, if, if Putin is going to go deeper inside Ukraine, create far more casualties, and and who knows, maybe take over the country, um, that is going to really create more chaos and, and destabilization of the fact that we don't have a, a strong White House standing up against that, standing up uh, to protect against a, a worsening human rights crisis. That's really going to have a very bad ripple effect in uh, geopolitics for many years to come. And so that's what I think everyone should look out for is Ukraine in 2019 and the lack thereof of sanctions by the U.S. and the EU due to uh, you know, leaders right now. Um, you even had. So I make. I'm gonna keep going on because I. I just really want to press this point home. You had four days after that attack in international waters. Uh, you had a an advisor to Frederica Mogherini, who oversees foreign affairs for the EU. You had one of her advisors writing in Politico. Four days after Russia openly attacks Ukraine, this advisor writes in Politico. Europe's sanctions against Russia are not working. So all of this points to, yes, Mueller's investigation can come out with whatever it wants, but is it still a shifting world order towards Putin's world now? And all of that's going to come down to whether the U.S. and the EU will be united in, in sanctioning uh, Russia because sanctions do work, or else Putin would not have gone to all this trouble to elect one of his assets, President of the United States. And that's my point for 2019. Hello, this is Virginia Heffernan. I am a co-host of Slate's Trumpcast, an opinion writer for the LA Times, and I also write a column for Wired. To me, the most consequential part of the Mueller investigation this past year was the conviction, arrest, and imprisonment of Paul Manafort. Manafort embodies, he's like the caricature of the corruption of the Republican Party, which for decades has been sending people abroad, sending, posing people as lobbyists, posing people as PR people to clean up the reputations of murderous dictators, including Yanukovych and um, Oleg Deripaska, the oligarch who was a client of Manafort's, who's also had it, has his hand in many, many bloody human rights abuses. Manafort, together with Roger Stone, defined these kind of acts for Republicans who'd seemingly been put out to pasture and set up a network of United States politics laundering the reputations of dictators abroad. And to me, he stands for the corruption of the GOP and his imprisonment stands hopefully for the redemption and reform of our political parties. 
Hey, 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 this is Randall of Randall's Animals, and I think the biggest Trump Russia story of 2018 was all about that crazy-ass honey badger Judge Ellis and his rulings in the Manafort trial. You see, Paul Manafort don't care. Paul Manafort don't give a shit. But you know why? Because he's stupid. You see, a honey badger don't care because it has to in order to live and survive in the wild. But Paul Manafort don't care because he's just so stupid. If you ask me, Judge Ellis went so hard on him, not because of all the um, counts to, of conspiracy or the five counts of tax fraud or bank fraud. It was because he walked around in ostrich clothing. Hello? I mean, how can one not expect to face the heat when they walk around like that in ostrich clothes? Now, here are some quick little FYIs about Pauly Manafort. He was born on April Fool's Day. How funny is that? In Connecticut. He's 69 years old, and his pop was indicted in a corruption scandal in 1981. Wasn't convicted, but he was indicted. Okay. And something tells me that Paul Manafort's grandpapa, who immigrated from Italy to the United States in the early 20th century, would have no idea that his grandson would grow up to walk around in ostrich clothes. Am I right? I mean, could you imagine? Jeez Louise. Anyways, if you ask me, Judge Ellis and Paul Manafort are the new Felix Unger and Oscar Madison. I'm sending big love and hugs to all you listeners out there and wish you have the most fantastic new year. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazel and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>